Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my Wisdom Publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Tonight we're going to be talking about uh, what it means to be triggered and what to do about it when we are triggered, what's going on. To demystify it is always a very important idea because one of the issues with being triggered is that we're suddenly in a very reactive, unsettled, distressed, threatened state and we don't know why very often. Uh, Triggers are not obvious, and so the experience can be unsettling, not just because of the physiological state of threat, but also because we're not sure why. We've suddenly gone from an engaged approach where we're in a physiological state of ease and comfort and suddenly dropped into a survival, panic, threatened mode. So tonight we're going to talk about the mechanisms and then what to do about it. And then we'll have a practice that will help us prepare for possible triggering events and help us develop adaptive tools. So in the earliest Buddhist suttas, there's a very clear teaching about being triggered. Buddha had this word anusaya, and then anusaya or anusaya is, um, etymologically, that's a Pali word, and that's the language that the uh, historical Buddha recorded the Dharma, well, the Dharma was recorded in, one of the ways it was recorded. And anusaya means uh, after sleep, something that's been sleeping and has awoken. Anusayas, they're latent inclinations that under the appropriate conditions, will rise as this really strong physical sensation known as patiga, which is this sense of physiological overwhelm. And it takes control of our actions, and it leads to very regressive states of fear and craving and doubt and at times even clinging and grandiosity. And the... Buddha had a very clear lesson on how to work with these triggered states, and we'll circle back as we discuss uh, being triggered from a clinical, contemporary position. So today, some 2,500 years later, we have a rather nuanced understanding. The Buddha observed this phenomenon, but really didn't know why it existed. He just... Uh, noted it and noted what to do, but he didn't know why Anusayas happened. So being triggered essentially during a threat or an emotionally wounding experience that has to do with, because we're a social species, any event that has to do with abandonment, rejection, shame, or social humiliation, or social ostracization, because of how deeply wired 
the brain is to connect. In fact, we have a circuit in the cingulate, anterior cingulate, dedicated to creating physiological pain when we have been rejected or abandoned or cut off from connections. Because it's in our survival as a species to connect and bond. That's what gave our species its greatest survival advantage. So just as much as for birds flying and for uh, other mammals have their own capabilities that are intrinsically linked to their survival, for our species, it is connection with others. When we are going through a traumatic disconnection, a sense of, especially from attachment figures, or when we're in any situation where there's a threat to our very survival, the brain is so flooded with a wide variety of neurotransmitters and there's a secretion by the adrenal glands of cortisol that's so strong that it essentially shuts off the higher functioning of the prefrontal cortex, which is what allows you to think in your future and think outside of the box and be clever and nuanced and uh, come up with different approaches and bond and link and understand people. It cuts that all off and it puts you into a survival mode. And your survival mode doesn't have hardly any use for this really uh, advanced part of the brain. One thing that also gets shut off is the hippocampus, which is responsible for you being able to store memories in such a way that later on you can consciously remember and turn those memories into a story. So today, if I ask you what happened today, you'll be able to bring up the memories and say, well, first I had, you know, this conversation and then I had this for lunch and then I went there for work and then maybe I went to the gym and then... I slept here because some friend dragged me and I have no idea what I got myself into. So you, you, you're turning it into a story and that's key to being able to voluntarily remember anything is the fact that you encode it into a narrative. But if the narrative structures of the brain, Broca, Wernicke's hippocampus, go offline in a trauma, then all of the sensations are recorded in a haphazard, unintegrated way. Now they're stored in a part of the brain that is entirely unconscious and will not arise when you want it to. They're latent triggers. So if you're in a car crash or suddenly attacked or are in a war zone and a bomb goes off or suddenly somebody close to you is deeply injured right before your eyes, the flooding of neurotransmitters essentially knocks out your capability of turning that into a story that you can recount. And so all of the sensations, the sounds, especially the body feelings, are all stored. Some of the sights, some of the sounds, but the entire body state and the inclinations to just survive. Sensations, which are not integrated by a story, are stored in areas of the brain that are unconscious and are scattered. 
and can arise without any sense of where they're coming from or what experience in the past they're associated with. So sometimes a memory of, uh, or a body feeling associated with a time we were rejected after a re during a relationship or abandoned by a caregiver or shamed by a social group will suddenly come up. It won't come up as a memory like our normal memories do. It will come up as a strong feeling of being rejected or being attacked or being unsafe. And by and large, as the Buddha noted, trauma memories tend to most come up as somatic states because they're stored in the right hemisphere and the right hemisphere has the most synaptic connections with the basal ganglia and areas that control your body. Very little connections with language centers. So you don't, memories that are stored unconsciously in the right amygdala, right temporal lobe, do not come up as a nice, neat story where you'll know why you're feeling the way you're feeling. They just come up and suddenly we're in a physiological state of threat because something in our present experience is similar enough to that original traumatic event even in the most remote way, it somehow reminds us of that original event that uh, it triggers the neurons holding, the neural circuits holding that memory, and the body state comes up. There's actually a region of the brain, the BSA, of, uh, you don't have to know this, of the amygdala, that actually does that. That's its job, to learn what to be fucking frightened of. It's amazing that we have this thing. Its only job is to learn fear. And it learns it very aggressively, and it doesn't ever forget. And it will grow and grow and grow, and that, that has ramifications. So essentially what winds up happening when we're triggered is we're in a dual state of consciousness because your left hemisphere, which is thinking, is completely presently aware, generally at first, about what's going on. And it's completely mystified as to why suddenly the, we're in a panic survival mode. So the body goes into this sympathetic nervous state where the heart is racing, where the body is clenched, the blood is circulating fast. We start to get warm because of that blood circulation. We start to feel a hair standing up in the back of our neck. And then other things start happening. We start having a sense that time is running out because that's part of hypervigilance and being in a alert, uh, sympathetic mode state. So we have a sense of time is running out. We need to react immediately. There's a sense of having no support, being alone, being up against it, having to act for our very survival because in our ancestral history, when we were in a triggered state, it wasn't time to bond, it was time to run for our lives. So when we are in a physiological triggered state, when we start to feel a sense of panic, for instance, you have to talk in front of a group of people, or you're on a date, or you're talking with one of your parents on the phone, that's associated with emotional abandonment, and you start to feel this the sense of unease, or maybe it's when you are walking in the neighborhood of where an ex used to live, and you start to feel the sense of what in 12-step they called, I have no idea where this word came from, but they call it feeling squirrely. <laughs> it's a great word, I have no idea how it came, maybe just because squirrels seem always kind of 
nervous and, and not very much at home. So we feel squirrely. And essentially that means we're in a dual state of consciousness because at first the left hemisphere is like, what the fuck is going on? I'm like, I'm just meeting this date for the first time, you know, or I'm just this job interview. I don't care if I don't get this job. Why am I suddenly sweaty, uncomfortable, feeling under attack? Uh, what is going on? In these situations, we are now in uh, essentially a survival mode, even though there's no threat present. That's the very definition of one of the definitions of a trigger. There's another one I'll tell you. But one definition is when we are in a state of survival, whether there is when there is no threat to our survival present. And when we do that, we feel impulses to fight, to become aggressive, to become frustrated, to to push our agenda, to make someone do our will, understand what we're trying to say. No, listen to me or B, we want to get away. See, we want to shut down or the last is sometimes we want to attach to something to make us feel safe. So sometimes people will have their attachment structures of the brain light up when they feel under threat and they'll wind up sleeping with somebody that they probably shouldn't sleep with simply because they were in a triggered state. Again, when we are in a triggered state, because the left hemisphere is still present, knows what's going on while the, the body is activated tight, the heart is racing, we, we feel we're under attack, it can feel or seem like we're going crazy because there's this huge disconnection between cognition and somatic state. Eventually, the somatic state will, will generally win so if we stay in the triggered state long enough, the cortisol, the physiological in ease, if we don't disrupt it, will eventually force the left hemisphere into finding something to be frightened of. It will look around, it will search, and it will find somebody who's scary or rejecting or giving us a weird look, and it will find a reason to justify the fear. And at that point, pretty much we're now fully activated because now the left hemisphere is going along with the idea that there's a threat present. So there's no way around uh, as an approach to triggers. There's no way around developing safe connections. A child or an individual who has a secure base in life is far less likely to be triggered. Why? When you have a sense that there's people there who are available, empathetic, kind, attentive, that will listen, that will not judge you, they are co-regulating your limbic state. They are actually, by the very presence in your life, they are creating what's called a vagal break. What's a vagal break? Your vagal nerve is actually, which runs down your brainstem to the diaphragm, it actually stops your heart from racing, stops your blood from circulating too fast. It essentially stops you from having ongoing panic attacks every little time in your life. There's a trigger. And actually, there are triggers constantly around us. If you think about it, we are seeing every day in New York more people 
than our ancestors saw in their entire lifetime. And a lot of the people we run into are not very happy that we are in their way. We are constantly encountering people who basically have the countenance of what the fuck are you doing? Get the hell, uh, you know, out of my way. <laughs> I had that when I got off of the subway and I'm going up the right staircase and there was this one person who was like just walking down the middle and I had this sudden sense of triggered, you know, the sense of you're walking down the wrong fucking staircase. <laughs> I'm living here the entire fucking life, you know. <laughs> and I'm a Buddhist fucking teacher. I've been, I was introduced to Buddhism in 1973 by my dad, you know. It's been a long time, and still I can be like... <laughs> so, um, the problem is, even though... Safe connections keep the vagal break on and basically make it less likely to be triggered because the more limbically regulated you are, the less likely you're to go quickly from an engaged state where you're using your face, the ventral vagal muscles of your face are expressing your emotions to a threat state where your body now is holding and expressing all of your emotions. That's what happens when we go from uh, safety to alert. Literally, there's this switch from expressing ourselves via our face to expressing ourselves via the core body, which becomes tight, muscles lock, where we the limbs get ready to run, and so forth. So the problem is, even though we need other people to prevent this from happening. Clients I've worked with, and much of my life is in counseling, um, and they're not really clients, they're just friends, I call them, but people I work with who've had trauma, abuse, early losses, learn to cut off their needs for secure connection with people, you know, vulnerable connection, because they've been so wounded They've been so abandoned, so rejected, so mistreated that they don't trust other people eventually. And so they actually make it more likely that they'll be re-traumatized. It's, it's um, a sad irony that the people who need the most co-regulation, the ones who didn't get secure connection, are often the most frightened of the very thing that will help them survive, which is to develop emotionally resonant, vulnerable, authentic, where we simply express what we're feeling as we're feeling. So this is that's a little bit of the background. How do we, what do we do now that we know a little bit about, more about the mechanics of being triggered? Well, there's an interesting series of studies that if you don't expect to be triggered and you go into a situation where there's a trigger, actually the physiological response will be stronger than uh, it needed to be. 
So the idea of never expecting to be triggered in life is a bad idea. People, studies show that you have two people standing right next to each other during a 9-11 type catastrophe or something like that. The person who's had some experiences with being triggered actually has a better chance very often than the person who's never expected to ever see or encounter anything that's threatening. Well, obviously 9-11 is extreme, but you get the idea. On the other hand, people who always expect to be triggered are also constantly activating hypervigilance, a, a, a sense of being unsafe. They're creating stories that frame and re-trigger the amygdala, so they're more likely to be triggered too. So what to do? It seems like we're caught in a double bind. If you never expect to be triggered, it's bad. If you do expect to be triggered, it's bad. Actually, the solution is far simpler than it sounds simply focused on being prepared know what to do all human beings at certain times given the right conditions can be jolted out of a ventral vagal relaxed uh, state where your heart rate and your circulation is braked where you're in engage where you can express yourself verbally and through facial expressions to a state where you no longer can connect and you're suddenly in an every man, every woman for herself type mode. So one way to prepare is to simply know what triggers are so that we won't be mystified by the experience. Obviously, and know when we can ex more likely to be triggered. Uh, triggering situations are people and places that have any connection with a trauma. So, uh, of course, that means any family gathering <laughs> or any people that are associated with someone who's been abusive or extremely abandoning could be a trigger because they're associated with an historically unsafe point of your life where you felt a need to survive. Anniversaries of losses are notoriously triggering. And I can say from being sober for 24 years, I know many, many people who've been sober for decades, but always, no matter how long they've been in sobriety, the same time of year that they had their bottom, even 30 years later, they get squirrely. They get uncomfortable because it's that same time of year where they had their most painful experiences of social humiliation, isolation, abandonment, shame. So those are the most painful times for them. Encounters where rejection is possible, dates, jobs, interviews, any situation where you're in a power dynamic, where you feel you're being evaluated in any way, could be a triggering situation. The only thing you need to know going into a trigger, triggering situation is not to expect to be triggered, nor not to expect, simply to know what to look for, which are again those sensations. You start to feel warmer, you start to feel your heart start to race, you start to feel your eyes bouncing about, you're no longer able to make eye contact because you're now scanning around the room for threats. Racing thoughts is a real cue because the more that you become activated, the more the brain goes in, the left hemisphere starts going into this loop, looking for threats, looking for some reason to 
become even more on guard. Uh, essentially, that's it's doing the bidding of the right hemisphere. Uh, inability to listen or focus, because when the right hemisphere discerns that there's a threat present due to a trigger, it will no longer be able to pay attention to stimuli that's not associated with threat. So these are the kind of things to look out for. So what do we do? And I should say before I go on this list that some people who are, have historically been triggered quite frequently, it's a good idea to either have a card or a very basic note on your phone or something that you can remind yourself. So when you go into a possibly triggering situation, you'll know how to respond. So first thing is going into one of these situations where you could be where you've in the past been triggered and so there's a reasonable expectation where it might happen again is to titrate. Titrate in the language of PTSD and triggering simply means to move slowly, react slowly, respond slowly. That doesn't mean slow motion. That means from the very beginning, give yourself permission to pause wait, take your time, not feel the need to respond, feel into your body, develop a slower pace. When we are in a triggered or the possibility of being triggered, what will happen is the movements speed up because we're in a survival mode. If you're already moving fast, it's a very little jump to get you into that sympathetic nervous survival state. The slower the movements, the more titrated you are, the less likely you are to be easily flipped into or, or have the flip switch or the switch flipped or whatever you get the idea. So um, two, long exhalations. Inhalations, if you can make them full, that's fine, but inhalations don't really matter. Exhalations are when you're exhaling on the breath, the vagal muscles actually lock your heart rate. The longer you spend breathing in, in, in any breathing cycle, the longer the time spent exhaling, the more the vagal break is on. So in PTSD therapies with people who are constantly being triggered or activated, the first lesson is to breathe out completely. If you can keep your out-breath twice as long as your in-breath, that's a good ratio to help prevent or to deactivate. Because even if you're in a triggered state, if you're locking the, your, the vagal break is on, you're preventing your heart rate from swinging, you're preventing your blood circulation, you're preventing all, you're starting to counteract or counterbalance all the physiological somatic uh, articulations of a panic attack, then eventually your amygdala will get the message and it will stop the secretion of cortisol. The entire process doesn't happen quickly. When you are triggered due to the secretion, first what happens is you secrete adrenaline, that lasts very briefly. Cortisol then floods. Cortisol lasts for a much longer time. It's much harder to be um, reabsorbed. 
So it takes about 10 to 12 minutes if you're really doing the long breaths. Safety cues, looking for signs of space, light colors, expansive, areas where there's not too much stimuli. So, you know, if you were in my seat, you'd look above everybody's heads. You wouldn't. Faces actually activate the fusiform gyrus. If you are triggered, do not look at a lot of people's faces. Because what will happen is that will send the fusiform spinning, and then the next thing you know, it will actually activate you because you're actually now firing more neural circuits to try to figure out what other people are thinking about you. It's not synonymous with a state of security. Mindfulness. There's where the Buddha and his wisdom came in. In the Anasayas and in the, especially in the Abhidhamma, the approach to dealing with triggers was to develop ongoing awareness of one's physiological state, the nonverbal cues that are associated with what's called feelings. What are feelings? They are the internal sensations associated with emotions or survival. They can be positive, happy feelings, a sense of energy flowing up, a sense of Vitality, confidence, a spread chest, a, you know, a relaxed facial expression. But they very often as well, feelings can be contracted, tight. You can feel your abdomen in a state of fear, extremely taut. After a heartbreak, a loss, the dorsal vagal tightens and creates what's called heartbreak. That's why we call it heartbreak, because after a loss, the dorsal vagal, all the energy plummets down, but the, the parasympathetic dorsal literally acts too much. It slows down the heart rate to almost a depression, loss, uh, inactivity state that can be actually very dangerous. People do die of heartbreak because literally it counteracts the rhythm of breathing and so forth. So to become, develop an ongoing mindfulness doesn't have to be this long meditative routine. It's a simple check. How does your belly, almost all of the feelings that are associated with the three different states of arousal, the higher ventral, the activated alert stage of sympathetic or the shutdown state of collapse, which is the dorsal vagal, they all can be read by just checking a few areas of your body, your stomach. If your stomach is relaxed, if your chest is open, if the, the jaw is not clenched, if your throat feels often, the muscles in the front, because that's where the door, the vagal muscles and nerves of sorry go, if you check the front of your body from your stomach to your chest, to your throat, to your face, that will give you the information you need. You don't need to register. You don't need to take your pulse. You don't need to, uh, if you just become aware your thoughts are racing and you check your body, if your stomach is suddenly in a knot tight, if you suddenly feel a state of 
tightness, your limbs are contracted around your torso, your jaw is locked, you've got all the information you need to know. Next thing is to start to do something that will completely counterbalance all of the installed survival, uh, you know, installed by natural selection. It's difficult, but it's important to learn, which is to learn how to essentially self-soothe by lessening the contracted muscles. If you're in a triggering conversation where you feel attacked, unheard, most important thing to do is to bring awareness into your body and find the areas that have gone into survival mode and to systemically starting from the, from the lowest area up. That's important. So start with the belly. If it's tight, breathe into it and then long exhalation, soften it. Breathe into the chest, long exhalation, see if you can unwind. Keep your arms away from your body and separate your jaw from any clenching. That's putting your body back into engage so that you're not in a triggered survival mode. Now, relaxing contracted muscles is frightening because it's counteracting what the body essentially has been told by the parts of the brain that have been triggered, namely the right hemisphere, the right amygdala, as saying, I'm unsafe, but we're actually saying, no, I'm not unsafe. I'm going to relax. I'm going to counterbalance this message. It's difficult. It requires practice. And what that means is don't wait until you're triggered. And that's why in our meditation, I'm going to teach you how to do it. It's important to, though, uh, practice so that when you are suddenly giving a toast at a wedding and you start to feel yourself panicking or when you are in a uh, situation where somebody who you expected to be soothing and kind suddenly is unavailable or rejecting and you, we start to feel this sense of alert, it's important to know how to self-soothe while it's happening. If there was a real threat present, you wouldn't, you, don't worry, you know. <laughs> One, if a real threat is present, there won't be any racing thoughts because you are actually under attack. Literally under a threat, the Broca and Wernicke's regions shut off. So if your thoughts are racing, it means that you're being triggered but there's no threat present because you're still thinking. If under a real attack situation, if you've ever been a really suddenly physically attacked or in a car accident or suddenly having someone tell you disastrous news, the one thing you notice is everything goes into a state of complete, almost incomprehension. There's no narrative. There's no inner thinking about it. So when the thoughts are racing, it's because there's a discongruity between the right and left, or the essentially the body and the cognitive state. Without developing an ongoing practice of at times checking in and observing your physical state, life 
feels overwhelming and frightening when we start suddenly do become triggered because the more you develop an ongoing daily sporadic check-in with your body the one thing you'll notice is that there's constant times when the stomach starts to become a little tense the chest a little contracted the jaw a little locked the throat a little tight you'll start noticing that we're not always in relax or always in startle survival there's these gradations and the more you become familiar with it the less overwhelming or disconcerting being triggered is now it is at times very difficult to develop awareness of the body and to self-soothe while we're in a fully triggered state because the body is really uncomfortable it's really tight it's really locked the heart is racing and it doesn't want us to countermand or to to do to work with it to develop any mitigating practices so there's certain things we can do if you're really triggered squeeze something in your lower body create a sensation that is neutral so uh, if you're around people and you're suddenly feeling extremely unsafe, squeeze the muscles in your toes as hard as you can. That creates a sensation that's neutral that you can pendulate away from the racing heartbeat, the feeling of warmth, the feeling of your skin being contracted, the feeling of your muscles tightening, the feeling essentially of being unsafe. You create something in your body that pulls or balances your awareness out again long exhalations two three visualizations speak directly to the right hemisphere so if you can develop uh, an image that you associate with safety it could be a person or an image associated with a place where you are you always feel secure and have that some people I've worked with in uh, counseling, I'll encourage them to even draw or have some symbol or tactile sensation that reminds them of that safe place or that safe person so that they can literally feel it. And uh, lastly, I'm going to just put a good word in for having a concentration practice. There was a study by Lazar at Harvard, Sarah Lazar, and other studies that show if you just do any form of concentration meditation, the general rule of thumb in these clinical studies is about 20 minutes a day. Um, but if you can't do 20 minutes, do 10. But even the shortest concentration practice actually they shows that the gray matter in the amygdala, which is associated with states of alert and threat, actually begins to shrink, and the amygdala becomes less active. And people who meditate 20 minutes a day for eight weeks, the cingulate, which allows them to focus their attention away from stressors, actually grows in density. So there's immediate payoffs in as short as two months if you just develop uh, any sort of sitting practice. And that can simply be just sitting and listening to a guided meditation. But it's really, um, it's really worthwhile. And now what we're going to do is actually put into practice 
tools to help us deactivate when we feel triggered. So let's take three breaths that actually will create a greater state of uh, physiological ease. We're going to be hitting all of the three places that we look for for signs of being activated. So take a nice full breath in. And as you breathe in, lift your shoulders up like you're trying to touch your ears with your shoulders. And then as you breathe out, lower your shoulders and pull them back like you're rotating them open. And what we're doing is we're opening up the chest and we're slightly keeping the arms a little bit less tight to the body. And that's a very important somatic cue. Keeping the chest wide, expansive. That counterbalances arousal states. And then let's take another full breath and either push out or tighten your belly. If you, if it feels right, tightening the belly, because that's what we're in when we're really unsafe. So tighten it. And then in the exhalation, long exhalation, and just release your belly, soft belly, completely no checks on it, no clenching, no contraction, just utterly released. That's the hub of the dorsal vagal. That's where it ends. And for the third breath, squinch all the muscles in the face. Really tighten the jaw, squinch the eyes, make a pouty little mouth, squinch nose, ugly little face, tight, 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 and then breathe out. And relax the jaw away from any state of clenching, and then release any of the tight micro muscles around the eyes. It's helpful sometimes just to breathe into those micro muscles right above the eyes, and then breathe out and soften. Encourage, send a request to the eyes to just settle into the eye sockets without balancing or bouncing too much. The more the eyes bounce about behind closed eyelids, the more difficult it is to settle the mind. So sometimes the most efficient way, along with just making sure the out-breath is really long, is to just also Breathe into the eyes and just ask them to take a nice, comfortable, relaxing little nap in the eye sockets. There's nothing going on that they can see.
And so we're just going to develop a very basic concentration at first. And we're going to do that simply by finding a present sensation and just paying attention to it without adding any judgment or any criticism or thought, any narration. Just try to focus on something that's actually happening in the present that we're not creating. So there's a bunch of choices you have. Of course, the most well-known is the sensations of breathing. Knowing from the movement in your body when you're breathing in and when you're breathing out. Trying to stay with the sensations. You could turn it into a little game where You're trying to stay as present as long as you can with the breath without being swallowed up by uh, Pac-Man-like thought. Something that pulls you away into a virtual reality. And you can play this game as often as you want. Whenever you get swallowed up by a thought or a memory, virtual reality that's not present, you just pop back to life relaxing back into the present and you return to the breath finding the lowest sensation of the body that you discern the breath and then move up as you breathe in and then move down your scan down your body as you release the breath If you don't like working with the breath, that's okay. Some people find it a little claustrophobic or if they have asthma, maybe a little triggering. So just listen to the sounds. The old practice is to pretend you're an anthropologist from Mars. You've just landed into a human body and this is the first time you're hearing the sounds of Earth. And you have no clue if a buzzer or a car horn is good or bad. You've never heard it before. You have no idea what it all means. So you're just listening to it like an exquisite, unknowable symphony of sounds. Adding nothing, just staying present with whatever auditory experience is going on. You could stay present with the lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Not images that you're conjuring, but just the closed eye visuals. Abstract light patterns, dots. Or lastly, some people We'll just use a very simple repetitive phrase over and over again as a concentration tool. And we'll return to this phrase, but it's, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. A message to 
all of the different regions of one's body and psyche, encouraging us to be resilient, to take care of ourselves. I love you, keep going. If it's really difficult at first to stay present and just find the sensation in the body or the sounds or the lights and add the phrase with every breath, I love you, keep going.
So at this point, let's check our body for a baseline sense of where we're at, just scanning up the front of your body, noticing if your belly feels, your abdomen feels clenched or if it feels soft, pliant, released. Checking your chest, does it feel open or is there a sense of tightness constraining the breath? Is the throat slightly tight or do you feel it relaxed? Moving up the muscles, the face, is your jaw locked or released? And that's like our baseline survey. And lastly, the <clears throat> the outbreath. Does it feel the exhalation? Does it feel long and smooth, or do you, does it feel cut off? Like it could be released even more, but there's some thing pulling us back into inhaling. So now what we're going to do is we're going to intentionally bring to mind a traditional trigger and we're going to learn how to self-soothe. Now bringing it up volitionally means you won't be anywhere near as triggered <clears throat> as you would be if this trigger suddenly become became present in your life. But you're in a not only you are in a safe space, but also because you're volitionally bringing up this trigger, it's not catching you off guard. You won't have the same reaction as if it was suddenly in your path. So I'd like you to think of someone associated with mistreatment, someone associated with acting unskillfully towards you, someone who's been harmful in some way or created emotional pain that you've been avoiding. Avoidant coping is a key to understanding a trigger. Someone associated with a wounding experience generally mistreatment or abandonment or keys. And even though it's uncomfortable, we're going to bring this person's image into our mind. Now, if it's really triggering as an uncomfortable, visualize this person not seeing you. They're across the street and they don't see you. But if it's available, visualize this person standing, you've encountered them, and now they're right in front of you. Try to make their face as clear as you can with an impassive or rejecting expression that you've associated with them.
And while this image is held in the mind, we're going to keep the exhalations really long, as long as we can. We're going to soften the belly now. going to pull the shoulders back and open up the chest. We're going to relax the muscles in the front of the throat. Keep the head up. We're just going to look directly at this image in our minds that we've visualized. We're going to keep ourselves in an engaged physiological state, a non-alert state, a state that we're essentially in this work, we're assigning what has been a triggering figure and we're reassigning it as an image we don't have to run from anymore. It doesn't mean we want to see this person or ever want to engage with him, but it means we don't need to live our lives in the shadow of this person. Relaxing the body. And now gently as we breathe, long exhalation, soft belly, open chest, gently have this person move further and further away. We're not pushing them away, they're just receding. further away. And now moving closer to us is someone who we associate with empathy, availability, appreciation, soothing, kindness. If no one comes to mind, just create an ideal attachment figure. It could be an angelic present or any presence or anything that works for you. Just create an image of someone who you associate with kindness and support. Returning ourselves fully back into a state of engage and approach and ease. So in a moment you'll hear the sound of the bowl and uh, see if you can bring with you this sporadic checking in 
just scanning the front of your body, the belly, chest, throat, and face, and then the length of your exhalation. See if you can bring this practice into the rest of your evening.